You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. What we really try to do is serve a population that can't just go anywhere. There is a huge gap right now between the medical world and the community. And if we don't fill that void, we will not be able to provide sustainable change. So there's really two things going on here. One is the disease process makes it harder to move around. So then people don't move around as much and they get weaker because they're not moving around. The consequences of being immobile are reversible. There's a growing hypothesis that people who are able to sustain their activity levels for a long period of time are potentially able to alter the rate at which their function diminishes over time. And that's really important. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Seabags, Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, and Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 83, Rethinking Parkinson's, airing for the first time on April 14th, 2013. This week's guests will be University of New England Parkinson's disease researcher, Dr. James Cavanaugh, and Jacqueline Morrill, co-founder of the Medically Oriented Gym. My high school principal died of Parkinson's in 2012. Dr. Kenneth Nye was just 70 and had struggled for 15 years with this disease. Despite his diagnosis, he lived his life fully and completely. Dr. Nye was a fine educator. Many a young Belial graduated from Yarmouth High School, having benefited from his leadership. He was named Maine's Principal of the Year in 1993. At age 60, Dr. Nye became a poet. He published four books of poetry, one of which included the piece, Going Home, at twilight. Coming down the trail at twilight, I am perilously close to being stranded in darkness. Earlier, I had figured I could ski the loop before it got dark. I was wrong. But I know where I am, and in the dwindling light, I see the trail, and the trail will bring me home. According to his obituary, Dr. Nye enjoyed crafting pewter soldiers, his favorite toys from childhood. His love of gardening, bird watching, travel, literature, tractors, riddle, joke, storytelling, swimming, sailing, ice cream, musicals, etc. kept him engaged in life to the last. Dr. Nye was a vibrant, intelligent man. It seemed particularly ironic that a disease of the brain and nervous system would prove his undoing. People like Ken Nye remind us that Parkinson's disease, though yet incurable, can be managed better, longer, by staying active. Here in Maine, we are fortunate to have researchers such as Dr. James Cavanaugh from the University of New England examining the relationship between Parkinson's and physical activity. We are equally fortunate to have places such as the Medically Oriented Gym, co-founded by Jacqueline Morrill, offering settings where Parkinson's patients can exercise in a supervised manner. Sometimes, the simplest approaches to healing yield the best and least expensive results. Sometimes, although we may feel that we are stranded in the darkness, we need only go back to basics to find that we know where we are. 
Dr. Kenneth Nye always knew where he was. He knew that he was mentally engaged fully during each of the seven decades he was given to live. He also knew that in his twilight years, he was on the trail that would finally lead him home. We hope that you enjoy our show today, Rethinking Parkinson's, with Dr. James Cavanaugh and Jacqueline Morrill. Thank you for joining us. I really enjoy bringing great minds together and having the chance to work with people who collaborate because I think that when we are talking about health and wellness, collaboration is key. Two individuals that I know are already doing some really significant collaboration um, in the area of Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, um, neurologic issues, and really a much, much broader scope than that are sitting with me today. I have Dr. James Cavanaugh, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of New England, and Jacqueline Morrill, who is um, the owner of the Medically Oriented Gym, or MOG, in South Portland. So thank you so much for coming in and spending time with me. It's really a pleasure to have both of you with me today. It's Mm. good to be here. Yes, thank you. We first became aware of the MOG sometime last fall, Jacqueline. I think uh, Charity from the MOG had gotten in touch with me and you know said, you really need to know about this. And I went over and I spent some time there. And I really was impressed with the work that you're doing. And I think other people have been impressed too. Um, Dr. Connor Moore, who's going to be on a show after yours, he wrote to me and said, I have Parkinson's disease. I've been working with a medically oriented gym. They're, they're, it's, what they're doing is, I think, groundbreaking for Southern Maine. Why did this become a priority for you? For about three years, I was working uh, in the area of cardiac rehabilitation um, with Maine Medical Center. Um, And we, in that time, just started to realize more and more the need to um, work within a, you know, multidisciplinary um, practice where we kind of live in these professional silos and, and focus on the patient with the issue that they're referred to us for. But there's a lot more that goes on to that. And when we, when we talk about exercise and the need to allow people and help facilitate them exercising for the rest of their life, um, it's a very complex issue because there's multiple comorbidities that, that tend to exist um, you know, w- within uh, one person's condition. And so at that time, I had reached out uh, to the medically oriented gym Um, They were fairly new at that time, it was about three years ago, and we started to collaborate uh, with the physical therapist there. And it started to work really well, um, understanding that if a patient comes in for rehabilitation for their heart, we still have to address bilateral knee pain and sciatica and whatever it is that's going to be a barrier for them to continue exercising even when they're done with cardiac rehab. Um, And so it was really phenomenal to be able to be part of that, you know, that process. And just more and more I got involved with the MOG um, and became very passionate about the need in the community to help fill that that gap that happens when, when a patient is in a really intense program and they see a lot of success, but then they get discharged either from PT or cardiac rehab or, um, you know, VNA, and then they, you know, are left trying to figure it out in the community. And so, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities for all of these professions to really work together on a daily basis. And, and that's been pretty phenomenal to be able to be a part of. 
Explain to me what the difference between physical therapy and exercise physiology is. And I guess I'll start with you, Jim, because mm-hmm. you're the physical therapy end of this, even though the MOG has physical therapists in it. So can you want to take a stab at that? Sure. So uh, physical therapy is a health profession. <clears throat> Uh, uh, in which um, the providers, the therapists, see folks from across the lifespan, and the the, the general focus of the interventions are to um, improve people's ability to move around so that they function better in their daily lives. And so with that, we have a tendency to focus most of our efforts on people who have specific health conditions or reasons why bilateral knee pain, sciatica, Parkinson's disease, why moving around is is difficult. And so... That, that's our primary focus. It's only, I would say, in recent years that we've tended to um, spend more of our attention on um, issues related to health promotion and physical activity and just general healthy lifestyles. And you have a specialty that I found um, kind of intriguing. So you have a special, you're a clinical specialist in neurologic physical therapy. Mm-hmm. Most of us, when we think of physical therapists, we think more of bones and joints and muscles, right. and, but yours is a little bit different. Right. The, um, uh, probably 20 years ago or so, the, um, uh, the profession developed these clinical specializations. So these are licensed physical therapists who've had a minimum of two years of experience most of which has been in a dedicated practice area working with a specific population like folks with neurological issues. Um, there's, a, there's an exam, an examination, a written exam that's required, and if, um, upon passing the exam, you're awarded the, the specialization credential. And so what that means for folks in the community is that if they're searching for a physical therapist and they have a specific issue, um, one way to go about determining whether or not you can, or one way to go about finding an expert is to look for the specialization credential. So if somebody has Parkinson's or MS or ALS or some sort, something that's neurologically oriented, they could find somebody. Exactly. Like you. And folks who have um, uh, issues related to orthopedics can look for an orthopedic clinical specialist, pediatric clinical specialists. There's a variety of different um, credentials. And how might people interact with an exercise physiologist? It's mm, a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think. Within the MOG, one of the biggest barriers we face is people understanding from the the public eye what these disciplines mean. Um, So as as an exercise physiologist, my specialty is more in the physiology of the body, how the heart works, um, how it becomes more efficient um, with exercise, how exercise can physiologically help to reduce your blood pressure uh, over the long term, how it can help to control your your blood sugar um, and and help to control diabetes, reduce your cholesterol, um, how the muscles become more efficient with utilizing oxygen. Um, so you know, I spe- I specialize more what goes on inside the body, um, and I think what we've been able to do is match with the discipline of PT, which. Um, aside from the neurological stuff, typically the orthopedic issues happen kind of, you know, outside the body, so the bones and the joints. And so we've matched those two. The other profession um, that we have who um, my partner, uh, Chris Pribish, um, is a licensed athletic trainer and strength and conditioning specialist who has worked in the area of physical therapy for 10 plus years. And so he has a really unique background in that um, he's able to work with 
um, you know, high school athletes that are looking to improve their performance all the way to an 85-year-old stroke patient who's looking to rehabilitate and become more active. Um, And so he has very much of a strong orthopedic background, understanding how the body moves and how it works. And very simply, you know, the body is a chain. It's a kinetic chain. And so everything that happens at, at the level of your feet can affect your shoulders and your neck and your knees and and vice versa. And so it, it really, when you're putting together, you know, an exercise program with all these complexities, it's so important to understand every aspect of movement and know how that can benefit, but also be a detriment, you know, to the patient if it's done improperly. Dr. Kavanaugh, you're an assistant professor um, in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of New England. And I know that the University of New England is just I don't even want to say exploded, but exploded, mm-hmm. literally. I mean, it, a lot. It's, right. it's everywhere, yeah. and it's really bringing a lot of very high-quality um, health professionals into the state of Maine. What changes have you seen in um, physical therapy education in the last 10, 20 years? Yeah, and in addition to um, this uh, uh, movement towards more health promotion, injury prevention, um, the other area that uh, 25 years ago when I trained that it was – virtually non-existent was they had to do with measurement and so um, uh, currently physical therapy students in training learn um, a lot about metrics ways to measure people's progress and improvement on a variety of different levels diagnostic tests that um, didn't exist 25 years ago um, that's important because um, as we move forward with healthcare reform and continue changes, our ability to be accountable for what it is that we do in terms of improving patients' lives is becoming increasingly important to third-party payers, et cetera. So measuring outcomes is really important. And um, uh, so, so that particular thing um, and, and communicating those outcomes not only to third-party payers but to physicians and family members of the patients themselves um, is a is a really growing has become a, a very important area of the practice. This is something that you've been working with the MOG, and congratulations on that name. By the way, it really sticks in one's mind. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't come up with it. I can't, so, I can't take credit for that, but yeah. But I don't think. But MOG. I mean, yeah. it's such it stands out on its own. Yeah. Um, so this is something that you focus on at the MOG, and you've been working mm-hmm. together and on a project that has to do with Parkinson's patients. Yeah. So talk That's to me about that. So it was a year and a half ago or so um, that Jim approached us uh, about, you know, through our collaborative efforts, one thing that we really want to support um, is the student research that happens and that that happens every year. So um, he had approached us about doing a research study with Parkinson's patients. And so it started with with a pilot program. But before doing that, one of the things that we needed to determine once we figured out what the study was going to be was the metrics. What are the outcomes that we're going to measure? And uh, that required us to reach out to um, Terry Ellis at Boston University. And they provided us some training on the standardized tests that we now carry out with all of the Parkinson's patients um, that we do pre and post and quarterly in order to to measure outcomes. So that was that was a privilege to be able to go through that training 
Boston University is, um, you can probably speak better to this than I, but um, is known as, as the place for, you know, in terms of Parkinson's research, um, you know, really the, the best resource to go to. So we got trained by the best, which is, which was a privilege. And we launched the pilot study. Um, we launched an open house. It was hugely successful. We enrolled participants. We measured data. Um, and it's just continued to grow from there. And it's been an amazing population to work with, truly. Um, the cohesiveness of the group, their dedication to participating on a regular basis is phenomenal. Um, their attendance rate is through the roof. And they're just excited, as, as you'll, you've seen with Dr. Moore, to really be a part of um, helping in, increase the awareness of the importance of exercise with Parkinson's. I think a lot of times certain diagnoses can lead to more of a medication management focus. How are we gonna manage symptoms? That's kind of the first line of defense. And certainly there, there is a place for that. But um, you know, the body also has other needs you know, outside of, of that disease state. And there's a lot that's unknown about the benefits with Parkinson's. And I think we're really hoping to be able to be a part of a group that can demonstrate that we really can um, improve symptoms. We can hopefully demonstrate we can slow the progression um, and, and improve people's quality of life. Um, even if it's improving other aspects of their life, their muscular strength, their balance, we know all of that will improve with exercise. So we're just continuing that research. We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Research tells us that it takes 21 days to make a habit. That means that many of us are best positioned to begin a healthier lifestyle while rehabbing from a crisis. When I lost the ACL in my right knee, I worked hard to recover. What I could have benefited from was a more integrated facility that didn't kick me out when my insurance was no longer willing to foot the bill. A more integrated system leverages the momentum gained in one phase of treatment to help propel you to a better life. If you are rehabbing from bankruptcy or another significant financial event, you could use help to identify your current needs, manage your spending so you can save in order to invest and create income that can be used to reduce expenses, hedge risk, and pursue growth and development for your future. If you have lost some momentum to your financial plan, send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. 
visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. I have in front of me an article that was published in the Journal of the American Physical Therapy Association, which was also a collaborative effort with other um, organizations. And it talks about the importance of exercise and Parkinson's. How does Parkinson's, for people who are listening, how does Parkinson's impact people physically? Right, so um, the, the cardinal signs of Parkinson's disease I think it's most um, known for the tremor that it produces. It also produces, <clears throat> uh, for most people, a, a general slowing of their movement. Um, and included with that is a general reduction in the amount of movement that they uh, produce in the course of a day. And then it also produces um, problems with walking and balance in particular. People become, they move slowly, they become stiff, there's often a tremor, they fall as the disease progresses. So um, you're right, there is a, a, a rather large body of literature that supports um, the benefits of exercise for people with Parkinson's, primarily to address the problems with uh, balance and falls and, and a general reduction in their movement capability. Um, and it's that body of work that led to um, the work that, that Jacqueline and I are doing at the MOG in particular. Those, most of those studies were done under, by researchers under well-controlled laboratory conditions, um, which is great. However, um, oftentimes in real life we, we can't necessarily replicate what gets done with a well-funded study. So. Our recent work together last year, the research project, was simply an attempt to reproduce the, the, the um, positive outcomes that have been um, published in some of those studies, reproduce them in a real-life community wellness facility that is dedicated to people with uh, chronic health conditions. So, uh, and we were successful. Yeah. Um, it was a small study, but we, were, we felt good about the outcomes that were achieved by the participants. Isn't that the direction we should be heading in anyway? Having more sort of real life, real time research so that we know what's happening with, I won't even call them patients or subjects, I'll call them individuals and families who live out in the community, how this really impacts them in, um, in their lives. Correct. Uh, we, um, you know, I was talking a few minutes ago about the importance of measurement. So it's one thing for a person to participate in an exercise program for a period of time and feel better about themselves. But when you have a chronic health condition, in particular like Parkinson's, that tends to slow you down and reduce your movement over, over months and years, knowing that your risk for falls is reduced, knowing that you're um, sustaining the amount of movement that you do, the, your mobility and so on, from month to month and year to year, knowing that in, uh, by the numbers, I guess, in quantitative terms, is really important for people. Jacqueline, why do we need a medically oriented gym? There's so many gyms out there. How is your gym different? What we really try to do is serve a population that can't just go anywhere. There certainly are a lot of gyms out there with a lot of different um, staff at the gyms with different certifications or backgrounds and a lot of qualified um, people. Um, I think our facility 
um, the multidisciplinary approach that we're taking and the dedication we have to connect with physician groups and really, as we spoke earlier, really bridge that that gap. There is a huge gap right now between the medical world and the community. And if we don't fill that void, um, we will not be able to to provide sustainable change. And I think the other thing that's really exciting too is, you know, as uh, going through school and pursuing, you know, my advanced degrees, I always felt like I had to go somewhere else to get an experience that we are now able to provide in Maine and to feel like Maine can really be at the forefront of what is happening in our nation and the healthcare reform and providing the residents of Maine um, services that that are are found in other parts of the country. But when we, there's 11 other MOGs in the country. And I think what's really exciting for us is that a lot of them are looking to us um, to to provide guidance and to provide insight. And um, it's, it's really an honor to feel like we can be a leader um, in that because of our amazing relationships that we've established with the community. We have this triad of collaboration that's happening between physician groups, university settings, and now the community. And it's opened numerous doors. Um, and I really do feel like the background and knowledge of our staff um, is, is so beneficial um, to, to the patients that no matter what, you know, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, a lot of times the orthopedic issues and the pain stop someone from coming in to exercise. Well, our members and our patients will come in no matter what. And maybe that day they have to have heat and stim um, to help them get through that flare up of sciatica. And then the next day they come in and they're feeling great. But at least we've prevented that, that break in their routine and we've kept them on track. And the second they need something that we don't provide, we send them to where they need to go um, and, and really help to keep that, that ball rolling instead of pausing and saying, let's just wait for it to pass and continue on. And, and I think um, being outcome-based, research-based, and really dedicated to the long-term is something that we're very proud of. I just wanted to, to say that from my perspective as a, somebody who works in a university setting, um, that one of the unique things about the MOG for me is that um, it is what, what is increasingly becoming known as an interprofessional practice. Um, very unusual in a community wellness setting. Um, not so unusual in hospital or rehabilitation settings, but in a community wellness setting to have an exercise physiologist, physical therapy, and athletic training working together um, with and for patients and their caregivers or whoever is unusual. And it is where medicine is going in general. And so if you're looking for reasons to distinguish the MOG from other types of, that would be, that would be a really strong point. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, Jacqueline just told the story about somebody who comes in and they can't exercise today because their knees hurt. And so they alter the care provided on that day so that the person hopefully tomorrow comes back and can resume their program. So that's one of the most important things that um, anyone, uh, in particular people with Parkinson's, but it's true for the general population, 
their, the need to sustain their level of physical activity and whether it's through a structured exercise program or just getting out and being active, um, to be able to sustain that day after day or week after week, month after month, year after year is really important for preventing long-term problems. Um, and so the MOG, because they're so agile in terms of how they alter their care for someone on a given day, really promotes that idea. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. When one enters a nature preserve or a secluded wooded area, we often think that we are the observer. Have you ever thought that upon entering such a space that we are in fact the observed? A thousand eyes are looking upon us. We can choose to see the natural world through hard eyes or soft eyes. Hard eyes make us separate from nature and also from other people. Soft eyes connect us to nature and to people around us. We welcome and observe the world around us with a sense of awe. Through this vision, it is as if we are seeing the world around us for the very first time. It is a fresh and new look. I think that in working with land and landscape, one of the things I really try to do is have a great deep reverence and respect for the natural world. And I try to bring that journey to my clients as we work together in designing and creating their landscape. For more information, you can reach me at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsor. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781. 9077. I think it, it is um, very compelling that we've come to a place where now the metrics, the measurements are important, but we've actually needed to return to the place where relationships are important and that there always has to be a balance in modern medicine, especially with healthcare reform, but really just with the way that we all think as individuals and within our society. Um, Jacqueline, I think you had some experience with maybe relationships not being always there within the traditional medical community. And that did that influence your decision to go towards more of a relationship, patient-centered um, yeah, care model? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've always been um, very passionate about collaboration, um, whether it's from one professional to another or from the professional to the patient with their families. Um, because I, I believe in the whole picture, and I believe that if we don't connect those pieces, ultimately success will not happen for that person. Um, and so f seeing the transition that has happened um, in healthcare um, and trying to empathize with the demand and the challenge that is being put on physicians to see a certain number of patients every day in 15-minute blocks, um, 
and you know personal examples of of my own with you know care that we went through for our son and your faith in the the information that you're you're being given is is definitely affected when you don't feel like one physician is talking to the other physician and you're waiting months for an appointment and you get to the appointment and you know no one has talked to each other and it's something that affects your entire life getting an answer to this and and i think it takes compassion and empathy and an incredible amount of energy um, to be able to provide that for the patients and it is not easy Um, i definitely don't sit here saying that what we do every day is easy or simple it is incredibly complex um, it takes um, an incredible amount of communication among our staff, um, putting systems in place so that we know from one day to the next what has been done, what has been communicated about, you know, that patient, and what has been what actions have been carried out. Um, and it, it does. It takes a lot of energy, and it and it takes an army <laughs> to be successful at it. But I think we can do it, and I think providing that support for for the physicians and gaining their trust in what we're able to provide will only help to cultivate that. So regardless of what happens with healthcare reform, whether the physicians are gonna go more into the, their own you know, private practices like the MDVIPs of, of the world or stay in the traditional settings where there's PAs and NPs that you see a lot, um, you know, we're there to do our part no matter what. And I think that's really important. And Dr. Kavanaugh, part of what I think happens with UNE is also attempting to, to do a lot of collaborative work, but to also help translate what has been found from the research and the educational setting into um, more of a clinical setting and the relationship setting. Has this become more of a priority um, that you've noticed over the years? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, in, in fact, um, you know, I, I chose after I... Uh, went back to school and got another degree and, and embarked on this research career. I specifically chose, um, because it's important, um, to focus my attention on this, this translation piece that you just mentioned, taking what's been done under controlled conditions in laboratories and making it work in the community. So there, there, is, a, there is a gap there. And um, to have people who are working to take what sometimes comes across as very sophisticated technical information and putting it in terms that everybody can use and use in a way that it was intended for the purposes that it was intended is important. And so that's why, for me, working with Jacqueline and the MOG and the people with folks with Parkinson's disease, that's, that's where all that comes together and what's make, what makes it so exciting. When I was looking at the, um, the MOG website, I was noticing things like, Tai Chi for Parkinson's, and I think yoga for Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and maybe also yoga for MS. Um, definitely programs that are more integrative in their scope. Is there research out there that suggests that things like Tai Chi and yoga might be good for neurologic issues? Yes. For folks with Parkinson's disease, research to date supports the idea that exercise is good. Um, I think we all would have guessed that on our own, but uh, it, um, the form of exercise or the form of movement um, that can benefit folks with Parkinson's is actually 
um, there, there are a lot of choices. And so whether it's uh, walking on a treadmill at a certain pace or a yoga class or a Tai Chi class or dance, or just dancing with a partner, um, there are a variety of different modalities that can benefit um, folks. And so um, that's really important because there are some people and perhaps a lot of people in the world who the thought of going to a gym and sitting in front of a machine and lifting weights is really not appealing at all. And so to know that there are options and choices based on one's personal preference that one can take advantage of and, and, and achieve similar outcomes as somebody who was lifting weights, well, that's really nice for the, the person on the street who's just looking for something that will appeal and allow them to sustain that behavior for a long period of time. I agree. I think it, it is the, the notion of play and the notion of actually doing something, not adding another thing that feels like a should into mm-hmm. a life that for most people feels like has a lot of shoulds. Mm-hmm. It's something additional that is enjoyable and that goes back to the motivation piece mm-hmm. over the longer term. Mm-hmm. Is it especially important to be um, dealing with, when you're talking about neurologic conditions, MS or uh, multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease that don't necessarily have what we would consider to be a cure, is it especially important to be more creative about the way we approach things like exercise? Um, I'm not sure that it's important to be more creative. Uh, To me, the more choices that, generally speaking, that's better for anybody. But... um, for many people who have these degenerative health conditions, whether it's um, arthritis or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, um, for many of them, especially early on, there's a sense that, well, there's no cure, I'm, I'm doomed. This is the end of the road for me. And what uh, many people fail to appreciate is that um, that's not true. And the reason why it's not true is because as someone becomes more immobile from as a result of whatever the health condition is, um, they become weaker and unsteadier and um, deconditioned, if you will, um, partly as a result of just being immobile. So there's really two things going on here. One is the disease process makes it harder to move around. So then people don't move around as much and they get weaker because they're not moving around. So if they are able to find um, some outlet, whether it's the MOG or something else that works for them, the, the, the consequences of being immobile are reversible. The consequences of the primary disease process may not be um, all that changeable, but the, the immobility part is absolutely changeable. And so, yes, it's, it's important that people um, look for and take advantage of these options to, be, to, to move around as much as they can, because they can, we believe it's still, uh, it, um, uh, there's a, um, a growing hypothesis that um, people who are able to sustain their activity levels for a long period of time are potentially able to alter the rate at which their function diminishes over time, and that's really important. And when you and I were speaking yesterday, you talked about often um, things go in the other direction. As somebody gets a diagnosis and they feel as if they're more um, immobile, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They become more and more immobile, and their their lives become less and less complex, and they're challenging fewer of their muscles and their nerve cells. So they're actually kind of going against what they need to be doing in order to continue to sustain um, a healthy life. Right. 
Right. People, um, healthy, most healthy individuals who are relatively active and mobile, if you look at their patterns of activity, their patterns of behavior from one day to the next, one week to the next, there's next. There's a lot of variability. One day you go to the doctors, the next day you're at the gym, the next day you go to the park with your kids, and, and so on. And as people become more limited uh, from a health condition, their daily patterns tend to be more predictable and structured. And that lack of variability um, over time is believed to sort of contribute to the overall decline. So anything that would help somebody not only be mobile, but to be able to exercise choice. And so that on any given day, they can go out and do something different or exciting, something they don't want. That's a really important, important part of health. We'll return to our interview in a moment. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. So did you ever wonder why geese fly in a V formation when they head south for the winter? Amazingly, they know that a V pattern increases their speeds by more than 70% versus flying in another pattern or alone. When in formation, they share the leadership and have a mutual respect for their common goal which is to arrive safely at their destination. They equally divide the hardest tasks, gather their faculties, and combine their resources and talents. This unified effort, their formation, makes the journey easier. Less energy is expended because they are all working together for a common cause. When the leader tires, he goes back to the end of the formation, and another team member takes the lead. Each goose, or a member of the team, uses their voice, or quack, to encourage the leader to stay focused and to keep organized. So how does the V formation of migrating geese apply to running your business or your household? In a word, team. A group working together to accomplish and achieve the same goal with mutual respect and understanding. Those teams will always come out ahead. Unlike the lowly seagull who scavenges and shouts mine, only looking out for its own best interest without ever seeming to get anywhere. Geese are unified and always looking out for each other, applying the law of least effort and gaining the most. It's a lesson we all could learn. Contact me for more information at boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. And we do know also that people who have 
well, not only Parkinson's, MS, but also things like um, arthritis and things like heart disease. We know that there is actually um, a psychological, emotional component. I mean, depression is something that comes up a lot for these populations. So there's there's even one more reason why people should be exercising, um, and that, that goes beyond the physical. Right. Absolutely. And the partnership part that, that Jacqueline was speaking of a few minutes ago, that's really important too. So if you're somebody in the community who was recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, for example, although we could substitute any health condition, and you're feeling lonely, like you're the only one who knows what it's like, the knowledge that there is a place in the community that um, has um, targeted programs for folks with chronic health conditions who understand, who know what the barriers are, and are working to address those, That's a ve- that partnership, that ability to form that relationship is a very powerful tool in your toolbox of things that you use to sort of move forward. Um, to speak to the, you know, the, the special populations uh, that we, you know, offer programs for, I think in terms of the modality of exercise, there's nothing that's magic about that. I think the staff that are providing the service are knowledgeable about the symptoms that, you know, the participants will experience. And I think that's really important. But I think what we're providing, one thing we evaluate in the Parkinson's population is a, it's called a PDQ-39. So it's a 39-item questionnaire about, you know, their, their quality of life and how they perceive life from mobility to activities of daily living to something called stigma. And do they feel like they have to conceal, you know, their Parkinson's from the public if they go out into the grocery store or... And so when it comes to Tai Chi or yoga, I think any modality like that, like Jim had spoken to, the, the variety that you're offering your body and the challenge that you're imposing on it um, will always be more beneficial than doing the same thing every day. And so I think what we're trying to provide the participants is that variety with the comfort of being surrounded by fellow peers that struggle with the same thing. Um, so they're not coming into it feeling you know embarrassed or shameful or nervous um, about having to be in a yoga or a tai chi class with you know someone who isn't experiencing those symptoms and you know everybody has has something that they come into an exercise class with insecurities or am i am i going to be as flexible or am i going to fall or am i not going to be able to do it um and i think the the cohesiveness of the groups um is is huge and so the Tai Chi doesn't necessarily differ that much from a, you know, a Tai Chi class that's offered to any other population other than the level of understanding of the symptoms and modifications that need to happen, um, but also providing that, that avenue for you to be in a room and to just let go and understand that the person next to you may have tremors too and you know, may not have good balance and you know, you're comfortable to, to try different things and everyone is very supportive. That's an interesting point because I know that um, when I've had patients and I've tried, I, I've said, you know, Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, here are some options. Sometimes, and these are patients who may or may not have anything wrong with them that's limiting their ability to exercise, but sometimes there's a sense of competition. Like they have to sort of pre-train before they can go to a yoga class or they can go to a Tai Chi class, or even maybe worse, they go to a class and they overdo it, but they don't have any way to know what the modifications should be, and maybe they haven't spoken to the instructor. So that kind of leads you down a bad path. 
And it's interesting to have that similar starting place for all of the patients who are in those classes that you've mm-hmm. described. Yeah. yeah, actually, I mean, um, I think it's important for folks to know that when they come to the MOG, no, nobody comes to the MOG and is thrown into an exercise class. It doesn't work that way. They come to the MOG and they meet the staff and they go through um, a comprehensive, medically oriented, physically oriented evaluation. Mm-hmm. And it's out of that that um, the MOG staff learn about the patient's preferences, their previous history of exercise. The MOG staff is able to judge sort of whether, what level of exercise would be best for them given their health condition and any other associated factors. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not just joining a class. You are being given an individualized, customized routine with support, and then you're often, but not always, plugged in into a group format where you carry out your routine, mm-hmm. where everybody else is doing their version of it um, and working together, right? So Absolutely. it's not just, you know, because so, what, you, what you just described is exactly right. People who have a bad experience coming in the door to when they go to a gym or whatever are unlikely to go back. And I think the MOG is unique in that way in that they really work to keep people um, engaged by giving them something that works for them. And there is, of course, this um, older, slightly older population for whom sports in childhood wasn't necessarily a given. I mean, my mom talks about coming along before the equal rights changes brought girls in on the playing field, and she didn't have an exposure to sports when she was growing up, and she's not that old. She hasn't even, she hasn't retired yet, so she's still in that sort of boomer phase, and I, there's a whole segment of the population that's like that, for whom physical activity really wasn't it wasn't something that was done, mm-hmm. at least not formally. Yeah. So do you think that your approach can be helpful in that way? A- absolutely, because I think we can make exercise something other than just exercise. Um, you know, one of our taglines, um, we're a medically oriented gym, but we're also more than an ordinary gym. So I think a lot of people come um, with the thought that they're coming to exercise, but they're coming you know, to socialize, which is a, is, is a huge aspect. We take their mind off the fact that they're coming, you know, to do this tedious exercise routine um, because that's not really, you know, what, what we're providing. We will provide that if that's what they want, you know, which a lot of people come in and say, you know, I really want to go through this very structured, um, very challenging exercise program. But a lot of people come in, they don't like to sweat. They don't like to feel the soreness of their muscles. They don't like the feeling of the fatigue. Um, But I I think a huge part that comes out of this is education. We really take the time to educate um, the participants on the benefits um, and why they're seeing benefits. And again, a passion of mine is the heart. Um, The heart is our engine. And, And I think it's really important for our members to understand that our body does not live in compartments. And, you know, if your heart is not strong, then your ability to do anything um, will be compromised. And again, there's, uh, you know, piles and piles of evidence around the fact that, you know, the the stronger your heart is, the reduced risk of mortality or early death from, you know, a heart event. And to speaking to what you said before, um, I think one of the most empowering things I learned um, in my time in cardiac rehab was 
you know, our ability to teach the participants that cardiac rehab isn't about teaching you what you can't do anymore. It's about teaching you what you can do and can continue to do. And these inspiring stories of people turning their lives around and finding things that they love because they're motivated to be healthy and stay strong and their spouses and partners and family, you know, get into it as well. And their goals might be canoeing with their grandchildren or grandchildren, um, being able to travel. We just got a picture from pictures from one of our Parkinson's participants who's now in Italy traveling around and walking and, you know, kind of seeing, seeing the sights and that's what keeps them, keeps them going. So I, I think there is a huge component to, you know, sports and activity and exercise was not always a part, you know, of, and certainly not structured exercise. A lot of it was busy, you know, busy work activities of daily living, you know, very early on the farming and, you know, and whatnot and chopping wood um, to, you know, now more structured exercise and busy lives. But we can really fit, we can fit exercise into any component of somebody's life. For uh, people with Parkinson's uh, specifically who um, didn't think, who, who may have been a, a non-exerciser before, the, the notion that you can come to some place and receive um, some education and training and have the opportunity to participate in a program um, has um, uh, at times changed people's outlook about um, what the experience of living with Parkinson's is going to be about. And so <clears throat> Jacqueline mentioned the person a few minutes ago who recently traveled to Italy. Um, and I don't know that person specifically, but my guess is they, they couldn't have imagined prior to starting the program that that was in their future because of what they had experienced with Parkinson's disease. So there are um, a lot of examples of people who even though that um, they may not have, it's not like we've turned them into a whole new person, but um, making a series of small little changes, seeing small little improvements that over time have sort of accumulated that then all of a sudden allow them to do something fairly significant happens routinely. So somebody who, for example, um, comes in to the MOG with Parkinson's who one of their fears is that they're going to fall because they've had that experience and it's common with people with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And so for them to go through a program or to spend a few months at the MOG and if the main outcome for them is that they're no longer worried about falling, that's a significant a significant improvement. So there are, there are stories that are like that. They're all unique to the individual because everybody has their own little, own little thing that they mm. find yeah. important. How can people find out about the work that you're doing with the University of New England? Yeah, so the Parkinson's research work, um, the, um, one of the benefits of being a partner with a place like the MOG and with Jacqueline is that, um, for me, the um, the most important thing to promote is how the work benefits people with Parkinson's disease, people in the community. And the MOG, because Jacqueline and company do such a great job at it, is a great, is a great way to promote that work. So um, 
we uh, the plan is is to is to routinely make available the brief summaries of our work at the MOG and the projects and descriptions and um, the scientific poster of the last research uh, um, project is now at the MOG and so on. So uh, the short answer to that question is look at the MOG website. Um, the university website is full of lots of information that have nothing to do with what I do. So <laughs> if you really want to know what this is all about, go to the MOG website. So Jacqueline, what is the MOG website? The MOG website is www.mainmog.com. So M-A-I-N-E mog.com and we also have a blog that you can link to through that my mog blog um, that has a lot of interesting stories um, and informational things from kind of um, explaining scientific literature that comes out um, so that it can be easily understood by the layperson. So um, we do a lot of that. We also have someone who does nutrition blogging. Um, kind of everything so a lot of a lot of the blogs about parkinson's and tai chi and whatnot um will be will be there as well um email is there so anyone can can send an email at any time we'll also have an article in the main health learning resource center parkinson's um newsletter this month so that will be out as well and it's all about kind of our collaborative relationship with UNE. Well, I have been very privileged to spend this time with you today. We've been talking with Dr. James Cavanaugh, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of New England, and also exercise physiologist Jacqueline Morrill, one of the co-owners of the MOG, or Medically Oriented Gym, in South Portland. Thanks for being a part of our show and to share all the wonderful work you're doing. It's been Thank a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 83, Rethinking Parkinson's. For more information on our guests, Dr. James Cavanaugh and Jacqueline Morrill of the Medically Oriented Gym, please visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We do love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. I'm privileged that our sponsors enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Hoping you have enjoyed our show on Rethinking Parkinson's. We dedicate the show this week to Dr. Kenneth Nye, my Yarmouth High School principal, and also to all of those out there and their families who are dealing with Parkinson's disease. Many of us come to the place where we believe that we could ski the loop before it gets dark, as Dr. Nye suggested in his poem, Going Home at Twilight, and ultimately find that our time may be more limited. I'm sure that our listeners, just as Dr. Kenneth Nye did, will spend that time in the most meaningful way possible, and in the dwindling light will see the trail and know that the trail will bring them home. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, 
sea bags, Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, and Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.